Chapter 5 of Silly and Its Legends by Henry James Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Tolman Head, A Legend of Old Town. Richard, Earl of Cornwall, was a powerful prince, surpassing in wealth and resources many sovereigns of his day. The revenue he derived from his Cornish mines was prodigious. He seated a large colony of Jewish merchants at Mara Zion, called differently by the name of Marga Zion, Market of the Mount, meaning that of St. Michael, or Mara Zion, Bitter Zion, in allusion to the abject state of God's fallen people, or Market Jew. Footnote, or according to Caru, Margu Diu, Thursday Market, which is a mistake, the market being held on Saturday. Caru's Survey of Cornwall, 1602-1669. Footnote ends. By granting great privileges to the sons of Israel and by sternly protecting them from wrong, he sagaciously turned to his own profit their talents for business. Under their direction, Mara Zion, or Market Jew, became a great place of export for those ores which, from time immemorial, have rendered Cornwall so celebrated. The mineral trade of England seemed to be centred in Mounts Bay, where, centuries before, the galleys of the Phoenicians had come to deal by barter with the rude natives. The monks of St. Michael's Mont cursed the unholy lust of gain which drew together beneath the very shadow of their blessed walls and close to the great cross of Edward the Confessor and under the chapel of the rock, these detested strangers. The flourishing town of Mara Zion swarmed with their well-known features. Their sordid gabardines and yellow caps were exchanged for robes better befitting their worldly circumstances, their wives and daughters bore, even in public, dresses of eastern fabric, and the edges of their mansions and their hoods were trimmed with costly miniver. They gave back with interest the scorn of the monks, and they were in turn an abomination to the men of God, though these last marvelled at the beauty of some of those maids of Judah, for, sooth to say, many of the damsels were very fair to look upon. It was principally from this source that Earl Richard raised the wealth which enabled him to purchase from the venal electors the dignity of King of the Romans, and entitled him to aspire to the imperial diadem. It was then, and from such hopes as these, that he assumed among his armorial bearings those Byzants, or Byzantines, in memory of which so many gentlemen of Cornwall bore, and still bear, the Byzant on their shields. But while from motives of interest, or of wise policy, thus protecting an important branch of commerce, the Earl was not a partial ruler. He suffered no subordinate tyranny, he would not allow the Jews to be oppressed nor wronged, neither would he permit them to oppress nor to wrong others. He upheld all classes of his subjects in their just rights. He supported, in all their privileges, the religious orders. He preserved all their immunities, untouched and inviolate. Yet this fact did not make him popular with the Church, as it might be supposed to do. The word Francamasonero, or Freemason, in Spain, under the reign of Ferdinand the Beloved, was not a more deadly charge than that of favourer of Jews in the days of which I write. Footnote, I remember once being told that a Spanish girl turned upon an English officer with horror and spat in her disgust upon the ground on being informed by him that our saviour was a Jew. Footnote ends. Such was then the feeling towards the once chosen people. Men whispered among each other that the gold in Earl Richard's coffers would be found leaves or ashes, since it was the produce of those circumcised dogs, and they shook their heads and made the holy sign, and prophesied evil things of the stout earl. 
In another part of his broadlands, the prince was equally disliked, though for a different cause. The great group of Scilly was not what it is now, a vast body of little more than rocks, but consisted of several large islands, the centre of an important traffic, filled with a numerous and flourishing population, and supporting many religious establishments. St. Martin's, Tresco, Bria, Sampson's, and all the adjacent places then formed one chief main island under the rich abbey of Tresco, and were held of it, for the most part, by bridle and spear, as the fief of a bold baron of the Norman house of Barrington. St. Mary's was likewise far more extensive than at present. It had wealthy houses also at Old Town, and Friars Khan, and Holy Vale. The monks and nuns monopolised all the sources of profit, and though their rule was neither unfair nor heavy, yet it generally happens that clerical landlords, from some reason or other, are unpopular, and so it was with the brotherhoods and sisterhoods of St. Mary's. They took no more than their due, though they took their due, even from the hard-working fishermen. The shaven crowns waxed sadly unpopular. But Earl Richard supported them in their sway, and refused to listen to the charges brought against them. There was a report that he failed continually in all his enterprises, how well planned soever they might be, and that, without giving up his lucrative patronage of the Jews, he wished to propitiate the favour of heaven by showing countenance to its servants. Certain it is, however, that all his schemes miscarried, but in an equal ratio to their want of success, his kindness to the monastic orders increased. He upheld them with a high hand in all their charters and grants, so that it soon became as dangerous to wag a finger against a frock or cowl as against the earl himself. The earls of Cornwall had been a fierce and fiery race, loving war and wassail, as did most of the princes of the House of Plantagenet, the most gallant and magnificent dynasty that ever filled a throne, but in that age it was shrewdly remarked that in proportion to the excesses of his life was a Norman noble's penitence upon his deathbed, and this penitence was usually shown in substantial gifts to the church, and not unfrequently by assuming her priestly robes ere the sinner passed away. It was the same feeling that, in Italy, makes a brigand consider himself sure of paradise if, after a life of murders, he is lucky enough to go to the scaffold with a priest murmuring absolution in his ear. Now, the heirs of a great house had no objection to the deathbed repentance, but were apt to oppose very bitterly the concession of worldly substance that, somehow or other, was made to form an indispensable condition of the bargain for heaven. After this fashion, the earls of Cornwall had been profuse in penitence. Like old Hugh de Mortimer, as related in Dugdale, they had bought remission at other people's expense, and grievous were the heart-burnings caused by their pious generosity. Earl Reginald, son of Henry I, had bestowed upon St. Nicholas of Innescore, or Trescore, and upon the shrines of St. Mary, St. Cummin, and St. Warner, and had confirmed to them in fee every wreck in the islands, except whale and a whole ship. Edmund, the last earl, heaped wealth and power upon the church. The brethren were the virtual lords of the islands, and did not bear themselves very meekly in the discharge of their functions. At the time of my tale, they were somewhat haughtier and more peremptory than usual. As a counterpoise to his support of the Jews elsewhere, Earl Richard went to the contrary extreme at Scilly. He abetted the good fathers in their vindication of their rights, and not only suffered no man to do them wrong, but, it was whispered, allowed them, on the contrary, to do wrong to others, by stretching the law in their favour to the utmost. The prior of Trescor frequently exhorted his flock against covetousness, and was very fond of enlarging on the text. He reproved even kings for their sakes, and of applying these words to the defence of their rights by Earl Richard. The sire de Barrington, a shrewd and stout old warrior, 
twirled his grey moustache and said nothing, though there was a curious and humorous expression in his eye, which the worthy prior did not care to fathom. But the common people, with bated breath, murmured to each other as they went home that, of the two parties which their lord was accused of encouraging too much, they would rather have the Jew than the priest. It was easy, they said, to spy the cloven foot and be on your guard against it, but the wisdom of the great serpent himself could never get to the bottom of a monk's hood. Now, among the claims of the good fathers, there was one that gave a special dissatisfaction, even more than the exclusive right to Rex. This was a somewhat onerous poll tax, imposed indiscriminately on every person landing on the island. The principal port was then, as it is now, called Old Town, but it was at that time in a state far different from its present aspect of ruin. Standing in Old Town Bay and facing the sea, you beheld, to the right, a stately church and monastic pile. In front on the left hand was a massy landing place and pier, the ruins of which are still visible, and above towered the noble castle of the Earls of Cornwall, while the whole circuit of the shore was lined with houses and edifices connected with trade. The point, however, to which my legend principally refers was a small cluster of buildings, a little in advance to the left. It consisted of a humble shrine or chapel, and a simple kind of guardhouse, across the front of which was stretched an iron chain, forming a barrier before a broad flight of steps that led upwards from the quay and gave access to the island. It was by this way that strangers first approached land. This projection was called Tolman, or Toll Man, point, the name being derived from a toll levied by the monks on every person without distinction who set foot on the shore. They held this power by a grant from a former earl, confirmed to them by Earl Richard. The revenue they derived from it was not inconsiderable, and was rigidly exacted. Nor was there any one of their claims which gave such dire offence. It was not only said to be a pagan custom, in support of which assertion people showed a huge rock on the spot called Tolman, or Holstone, and affirmed that it was an object of druidical adoration, to which they made every worshipper pay toll, but it pressed most unjustly upon the very poorest class for every fisherman who left the island, though only for a few hours, to gain a little support for his family, was compelled to give his might in the way of tribute on his return. Nay, even holy palmers from the east, who were always elsewhere considered exempt from tax or charge, were forced to render the Jews ere they were permitted to proceed. This was said to be an infraction of the charter and a clear violation of that most pious and equitable statute that no priest nor pilgrim ought ever under any circumstances to pay anything, the duty of the good men being solely to receive. But the monks, strong in the buckler of the faith and of Earl Richard, spoiled not only the Egyptians but their own order most pitilessly. Complaints were made, long and loud, to the Earl, who promised redress, and with some intention of granting it, for he was in sad want of a subsidy, and these allegations, if proved, would authorise him to extract a pretty heavy benevolence from the transgressors, or raise a goodly sum by way of bounty on their lands. It was a sunny evening in May, when a small company of pilgrims was seen on the deck of a vessel that neared the harbour of Old Town with a favourable wind. They bore down directly on the foot of the steps at Tolman Point, which, as it was then high water, they reached without difficulty. On coming alongside the broad stones that formed a base to the stairs, they sprang ashore and began to ascend. At their head was one apparently of higher rank or of superior sanctity, for he walked alone. His face was partly buried in his large cloak and partly concealed beneath his wide-brimmed hat, the deep flaps of which, hanging down, were often employed to hide the features. 
He passed on neither speaking nor apparently heeding anything until he reached the heavy chain, which was drawn across the way. Laying his hand upon it, he found it was fastened with a padlock. As one of the brothers was sitting in the toll house, reading, as it seemed, his book of prayers, the pilgrim, after several vain attempts to undo the chain, called to him in a firm but courteous voice to unfasten it and give him passage. It chanced that the person thus addressed was the prior, who, having sent the occupant of the place on an errand, had, during his absence, taken his post. Angry at being thus interrupted, and scarcely seeing who it was that spoke, he bade the newcomers wait a while and resumed his studies. The pilgrim, however, seemed in no mood to do as he was told. "'How now, Sir Priest?' replied he. "'You are malapert, forsooth. Open as I bid you, and let us pass. There is no toll levied on such as we.' The tone in which he spoke was stern and sharp, but the prior was an old man, hard of hearing, cold and unbending in his disposition, and too much accustomed to this kind of complaint to pay attention to it. He glanced slightly at the group, but looked down again and made no reply. He was not, however, long suffered to remain in peace. Laying his hand upon the chain, the pilgrim vaulted over and stood before the prior's seat, his form erect, eyes flashing fire, and his whole figure convulsed with passion. A prudent man would have let him go unchallenged, but the prior was spoiled by the habits of unquestioned power, which ecclesiastics of that day assumed over every rank and class. He was, besides, a proud, resolute man who had been a soldier in his youth and had ridden through a stricken field. His apathy was gone at once, rising up with considerable dignity and drawing to its full height his spare and ascetic form, he laid his hand upon the pilgrim's breast and bade him stand back. It was an evil chance that he did so. His hand had scarcely touched the palmer's chest ere the latter flung his cloak aside, raised his mailed arm, and smote the old man rudely upon the head. "'Dog of a priest, thou cowled robber!' he cried in a voice of thunder. "'Take that as a memento of Richard Plantagenet.' And the prior sank at his feet, bathed in blood, and over him stood Earl Richard, looking darkly down upon him as he lay." They raised the old man and tried to stanch the gore that welled from his temples, but in vain. The blow was given by a hand that seldom struck twice. He opened his eyes and looked upon the earl, whose hot fit was already succeeded by sorrow and remorse. Richard took the prior's hand and spoke to him kindly, but the sufferer was already almost beyond the reach of human blame or praise. He glanced at the prince and then at the castle that frowned above them. The spirit of prophecy, which is said to visit the dying, seemed to tremble on his lips. He whispered rather than said... Lord Earl, that blow has struck both thy house and thee. And word he spoke never more. The prediction was fulfilled. Earl Richard made all the amends in his power. He abolished the toll and gave to the brethren in exchange great largesses far surpassing in value what he had resumed. On the spot that had witnessed his crime, he founded a chantry where masses were said daily for the soul of the murdered man. But from that hour, the Earl's affairs declined. He wasted his wealth in unprofitable enterprises and finally went down to the grave a broken, moody, miserable man. Nor did the curse fail of its accomplishment on the spot. It never prospered again. The sea gradually encroached upon the land and swallowed up field after field of fruitful ground. The stately church was injured by a storm and was rebuilt in diminished size and beauty. The castle fell to ruin. Why and wherefore no one could tell. Storms of thunder and lightning, so uncommon and silly, occurred constantly. Sailors and traders began to shun the place and believed it haunted by the ghost of the dead prior, which, it was said, was often seen at Tolman Head, exacting tribute from a spectral figure at the head of an equally unsubstantial train. 
At last, the usual effects of such rumours followed. Merchants first landed in a pleasant bay near at hand, called Porcrasa, and then discovered that in St. Mary's Pool, beyond there, was a safer and surer anchorage. Fishermen took thither their produce for sale. So a town was formed, by degrees, and on the hill above, a fort dedicated to the Virgin, and called Stella Marie, or the Star of Mary, was afterwards built. Thus there came down upon Old Town gloom and desolation and decay. The ancient druids who worshipped there seemed to overshadow it still with their dim phantom presence. The blackness of the churchman's malediction is still resting there. The druid goddess, on Vana, the sea, gains upon it daily, and Tyrannus, the thunderer, is often heard. It seems abandoned to gloomy influences, and seen on a darksome day is a place whose melancholy is not soon shaken off. At no distant period it will be buried beneath the ocean, which will roll silently over all that remains of its former greatness, and leave only a few sublime leaves as records of its past history, with the memory of the old man's curse. End of chapter 5. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.